Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to the Crime and Investigation podcast. My name is Martin Hines, and this time we are joined by Duncan Campbell, the former crime correspondent for The Guardian and the author of the recently released book, We'll All Be Murdered in Our Beds, The Shocking History of Crime Reporting in Britain. Now, if you want to get involved in the Crime Investigation podcast, let us know on social media. We're on Twitter, at CI, or search on Facebook for CI UK. We'd love to hear your feedback and your correspondence, and your comments are always very welcome. But for now, let's listen to Duncan Campbell talk about his new book and all things crime reporting. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So we're here to talk about your book today, uh, which is an amazing work, an amazing piece of literature. But first of all, why write it? What was the rationale behind writing the book? I've always been fascinated by crime reporters of previous generations. And if you if you want to go back to couple of centuries, you could say Charles Dickens was an early crime writer, Daniel Defoe was an early crime writer, Dickens used to cover the courts, Dickens went attended public executions and wrote about them. So there's a long history of people writing about crime, being fascinated by crime, and recording it. And I've always found it to be, I think, the, one of the most interesting and most intriguing aspects of journalism. So I was curious to look at other ways that people had reported on crime and, and a history of it. Can you recall your first interest in crime? How old were you when you first became fascinated with the subject? As a probably 13 or 14-year-old, I started reading Agatha Christie, and then I quite swiftly moved on to uh, the various true crime magazines. You probably, they're still around, True Detective, True Crime, um, and they had a kind of dreadful fascination for me. My parents thought I should be reading something called The Eagle, which was a nice middle-class comic, and a children's newspaper, which is as it sounds. But there was something fascinating about these bodies in ditches and grim-looking uh, police officers in trench coats and hanging around behind them, sometimes a bloke with a notebook, and that was the, would be the crime reporter. Were you always interested in writing? Was that something that came naturally to you or did you have to work at that? No, I loved it. I, I wrote at school and when I was at university, I used to, I edited the student newspaper in, in Edinburgh University where previous uh, editors were included Robert Louis Stevenson and subsequent editors, Gordon Brown. So there was, there was a mixture of uh, people doing it. And at that time, what was interesting uh, I'm talking in the, the mid-60s. Um, 
some of the pieces, the big features we were doing then, one was on abortion, which was illegal then, one was on homosexuality, which was illegal then, and one was on the death penalty, which was still in operation. So that's how quickly things have changed in the last 50 years. I read an amazing fact of the day that in France, the guillotine was last used the year that Star Wars came out in 1977. It's just incredible to think how much we've progressed since then. Yes, and it, in France, in up until the 1930s, executions were still in public. I mean, our public executions were still going on into the 1860s. People travelled by underground to watch them. I mean, it was it was like going to a football match, and a big hanging, public hanging, would attract a crowd of 40 or 50,000, and you would have to get there early in the morning, kind of like getting a decent seat in Wimbledon, um, in order to get a good view. And people would shout, hats off, uh, so that they could see the, the the unfortunate person dangling at the end of a noose. The death penalty will be covered on a later edition of, of this crime investigation podcast. But when you were at Edinburgh University, not to equate it with the death penalty, yes. but uh, you struggled in your first year. Am, am I right in saying yeah, that? Yeah, first year I failed everything apart from criminal law, which was a kind of indication. The other subjects, jurisprudence and civil law, I struggled with eventually staggered through and got a, a law degree. After the law degree? Tell, after us, the, tell us next. Yes, after the law degree, I worked as an advertising copywriter in London and in uh, San Juan in Puerto Rico for a couple of years. Um, but I had always wanted to be a reporter and, and then so I gave up advertising, headed to India and it coincided with the outbreak of the Bangladesh, the war in, over the formation of Bangladesh, the, in what was then East Pakistan. And I was in Calcutta at the time, and a very kind-hearted Sunday Times reporter called Nicholas Tomlin uh, knew that I wanted to be a reporter and told me how I could get accreditation, and I joined with him in the Indian Army, and we went into Bangladesh one morning at 4.30 in the morning. And uh, the war was over in a couple of weeks, and I did some pieces on it and and that kind of made it easier to to carry on and I traveled around I worked in Hong Kong for a while and in Japan and in California freelancing and then came back to London and got a job with uh, LBC radio when it started in 1973. When did the crime reports become your bread and butter your everyday work? Well I worked at, mag at Time Out magazine in the days when it still had a lot, of, a lot of news. It had big news coverage and looked at miscarriages of justice and police corruption and uh, all kinds of stuff like that uh, in the 70s. And one of the cases I covered was called the Torso Murder case, which was two, two men who had been wrongly convicted, as it eventually transpired, of killing two criminals. They were both North London criminals themselves. Um, and I was told to go along to the trial, which lasted for six months. And during that time, I met a lot of people connected with it and lawyers and, and so on. And that was, I wrote a, a, a book about it uh, called The Torso Murder Case, which was not published because of the libel laws, which, as you know, are very strict in this country. Uh, but it gave me, gave me a, a real taste for it. And that was my kind of introduction. So I specialized very much in crime at that time. Uh, and that eventually led to me being working at The Guardian as their crime correspondent. How challenging is it, is it to work for The Guardian for crime? Because I imagine compared to maybe other newspapers, you had yeah. to 
cover crime in a slightly different way, perhaps? Well, for me, it was a dream place to work because you had nobody telling you what spin to put on stuff. And what was interesting to me, talking to other... I interviewed uh, as many of my contemporaries and, and crime reporters who were still alive as I could. What was interesting is how some of them were told... Um, the kind of stories not to cover it, to cover. For instance, somebody who, who um, at The Sun had been told not to bother covering a murder because the, the victim uh, was black or Asian. Um, and um, whereas at The Guardian, you kind of were left very much to yourself. The other aspect was uh, the editor for all the time that I, most of the time that I was there, Alan Rusbridger, Supports his supported his journalists very much, and so when I got um, sued by a number of officers from Stoke Newington Police Station in North London um, for libel, uh, I got enormous support from uh, Alan Rusbridger and from the Guardian. They said it's a matter of principle; we'll fight it, and we fought it, and and we won uh, the action. And I don't think we were the first newspaper to win a libel action against the police federation um, in 95 cases. And most most of the, the press, a lot of local papers, had had to apologize, pay some money, and get out of it that way. But um, I think um, Alan Rusbridge's belief was that if we believed that story was true, we should defend it. And it's high risk. If we'd lost, it would have cost a million, more than a million pounds. Um, and it it ended up costing the police federation about six hundred thousand, um, and I th don't think that many other papers would take that kind of risk. How important is it, or maybe how difficult is it, to establish a trustworthy and two way relationship with the police or with with crime solvers or whomever when you're a journalist? It it can be difficult because I think I mean I've always believed you you have to talk to your both sides in this. And I think um, obviously a lot of reporters had much be better police contacts uh, than I did because The Guardian was perceived as being sometimes critical of the police. Um, but at the same time, I think a lot of um, the other side, people involved in crime or who, who were up on trial, were very wary of of the press because they had been stitched up by them in some ways or or let down for, by them and the in 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 the book I go to go into a number of cases where people have trusted reporters in the past and have been let down by them they've been working with the police or so on so I think you always have to be straight with both sides um, and try not to be um, too involved with either but I think you have to always protect your sources and I think what happened in all the events that led up to uh, the Leveson inquiry I think the disappointing thing for a lot of my colleagues in, in News International was that they, their employers eventually handed over details of all their contacts to the police and that has created enormous problems for people cover writing about crime now. You mentioned the Leveson Inquiry there. Yes. You, of course, worked very famously on the Rose West case in the mid-90s, and Brian Leveson was a key part of that case, right? He was the prosecutor. He was the chief prosecutor, yes, and did a very successful job in getting Rose West convicted. 
talk to us about that case because it was very famous. It was very symbolic of the time in terms of crime and crime reporting. But also maybe significantly, you were the lone journalist to visit the house where the atrocities occurred. Yes, what what happened was during the trial, um, the jury asked if they could visit uh, 25 Cromwell Street where most of the murders had taken place. And the judge said that they could, uh, but and they could be accompanied by one reporter and rather than a whole, because there were about 120 people covering the case in different parts of the court. And um, so there was a a draw, a raffle. I never win raffles, uh, but I, I won, if you like, this one. And it was terribly interesting. Um, we weren't allowed to take photos or anything like that, and the police moved you on. But what struck me was what a tiny house it was. And there's the Wests, Fred and Rose West, in there with their children, with their lodgers. And uh, how on earth did people not know what was going on? And it was very chilling to see the rooms where all these extraordinary things had taken place and that so many clues as to what had happened in that time were missed. I mean, what was interesting about the West case was it was a husband and wife team. They would pick up young women, hitchhikers and so on, who obviously thought seeing a married couple, a couple of kids in the back seat, the safest lift you could have rather than a single man or something like that. And it was on that basis that they were this normal, if you like, little family that they were able to hook people in as as lodgers or as people picking up lifts and and so on. Um, And as you know, Fred West hanged himself before he could come to trial. Rosemary West kind of tried to put all the blame on him. And it was a chilling case. I mean, it was uh, the level... What was interesting is that a lot of it was not reported. It was too grim and too grotesque um, for a lot of newspapers to take. And and f- a lot of people said to me, friends would say, I, I know you're covering the West case, but I can't read about it. It's just too horrible. There's a very similar case happened a couple of years ago with Ian Watkins, who was a singer of, of a rock band called Lost Prophets. Yeah. And he was convicted of... of, of planning to commit sexual assault on, on a child and yes. having indecent images. Yeah. And... and the actual reports, the documents w- yes. were too much for, for people. Yeah. They had to release them because everything couldn't be described in court because of the atrocities that were about to happen. Yes. When you're face-to-face in a courtroom or, or, or looking around a house where, where crimes like that happen, how hard is it to detach yourself from the emotions and to look at it with your reporter hat on? Well, I think, it, I think it's relatively easy because it's not happened to you and um, tomorrow's another day. I mean, it, it's... It's the actual victims or the relatives of the victims who I think have to deal with the stuff rocketing about in in your head about the details of it. But, I mean, what was one of the seductive parts of crime reporting is that there's always another story around the corner. And so you do remember some of these events and you're struck by the brutality of of some of the crimes and the bravery of, of some of the people involved, whether they're the victims or the police officers or, or or whatever, but life goes on. You've sat in many courtrooms observing some of the most famous crimes really of all time. Have you been able to develop almost a sixth sense in terms of predicting how a case is going to go, if somebody's guilty, if the prosecutor's any good, what the judge is thinking that day? Have you managed to kind of envelope that into a system when you're reporting? I'd, I'd love to say I could tell you 100%. <laughs> I mean... 
there used to be in the press room in the Old Bailey, we used to have a sweepstake on how long a jury would be out. You know, everyone would put a quid or a fiver in as to five hours, 25 hours. Sometimes people are, the jury's out for more than a week. But Edgar Wallace, the famous novelist who was a crime reporter for the Daily Mail in the 1920s, used to reckon that you could tell um, whether or not the jury were going to convict if when they came back into court after their deliberations, they looked at the defendant. If they looked at the defendant, they were going to acquit. If they looked away, they were going to convict. And I think that's probably still true today. Um, and we all, you know, reporters covering it, you all think, oh, he's, you know, they've made up their minds. The normal rule is that the quicker the jury come back, the more likely it is for a conviction. The longer they're out, um, the better your chances of being acquitted. A lot of what we're discussing is analysed more deeply in, in your book, We'll All Be Murdered in Our Beds. Great title, by the way. Uh, very, very visceral title. When you were researching the book, what came to your mind? Was, was there any specific facts or stories that, that even surprised you having done all this research? I was surprised. I, I, the, there's one chapter about women crime reporters, and I was surprised at the dreadful level of misogynism and prejudice that even as recently as the 1970s they encountered. Sylvia Jones, who was the first who was the crime <coughs> correspondent for the Daily Mirror, was the first uh, chairman, as she would call herself, of the Crime Reporters Association. And some of the other reporters uh, tried to stop her from becoming that. Amazingly enough, the Mirror had to threaten to go to court uh, to allow it. And she's a very good reporter. She got a lot of scoops, and people would anonymously phone her then-husband and say, you know how she got that uh, scoop, she's sleeping with the detectives. Completely untrue. But that level of, of uh, misogynism amazed me. The other thing is the quantities of drink that uh, crime reporters went through. That's changed in Fleet Street for all reporters for a variety of reasons. But uh, John Weeks, who's the crime reporter for the Telegraph from the sort of 70s onwards, said that they reckoned that every that crime reporters drank eight pints a day. Um, and as he said, it was the days before breathalyzers and, <laughs> and so on. Um, and the such was the level of, of drinking that sometimes on murder cases when they'd be out of town on a, somewhere in the country, you'd all be staying in the same hotel as the detectives and people would all drink and drink together. Sometimes some reporters would get... Um, so drunk that they couldn't file their story. So other reporters would ring their news desk for them, put a different first paragraph on and pretend it came from them. And there's a story in the book. I won't, I won't on this podcast go into the actual language of what they said, but of, of a report now dead uh, reporter for the Mirror coming in, carrying a copy of his newspaper, being too drunk to write it but he'd seen his, his story with his byline on it and say, there, don't ever say I can't write when I'm drunk. <laughs> and he had no idea that he hadn't actually written the story at all. The book is full of great stories like that. And it's also full of real historical interest. It, it, it touched back from 1700. 
from your perspective of your career having worked not since 1700, I should hate to you just a little later, yeah. Um, what are the most significant changes you've found in terms of court reporting over the last 30 or 40 years? Well, the most significant ones is that courts are not reported in anything like the detail they were. Um, it used to be for local newspapers completely standard that pretty much all the local magistrates' courts, the local crown court would be covered in great detail and there would be pages of, you know, even if it was just drunk driving or shoplifting or something. That has, comp has ended. When I started, there used to be, um, I think, seven Old Bailey Press Association court reporters. It's now down to two. Uh, a lot of newspapers, um, the Telegraph and, and the Independent, used to have a full-time courts correspondent. Uh, I think only the Evening Standard now has that. And so there's a lot of cases that are just murder cases, big cases, go completely uncovered. And a lot of newspapers, because they're facing um, financial problems, don't reckon they can afford to send a reporter to cover a case in the way that that once happened. I mean, when I covered the Rosemary West case, it, you're filing every day. You file at lunchtime and you top it up in the evening. Uh, it's very, very rare now to see a case, even a big one, covered on a daily basis. And that's, I think, the biggest and the saddest case because I think you learn an enormous amount from from about everything, you know, ab about drugs, about immigration, about work, uh about um, domestic violence just from from court cases. And you learn from the detail, not from the headline. And I think that's the, the saddest thing that's happened. I, I know people are now starting to seek crowdfunding for covering uh, cases, which is a new development. Um, uh, but I think the great uh, sadness is, is that a lot of local papers just don't have the staff to cover court cases properly and so uh, and and to a great extent a lot of fleet what we used to call fleet street newspapers uh, cut put more effort into covering celebrity stories than crime stories and that's I think a, a, a disappointing um, development you mentioned crowdsourcing there and crowdfunding yeah. indeed a new show coming up on crime investigation is the killing season which yes. is a, a really interesting detailed look at People trying to solve a crime and then finding out that there's perhaps more crimes all around involving involving a killer and serial killers and things of that nature. You've watched the first two episodes, I believe. Yes, I have. Uh, what were your thoughts on the show? Well, it, it 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 taught me quite a few things. I mean, I didn't I'd not come across this idea of the web sleuth, which exists in the United States, where people with an unsolved crime uh, go online and try and solve it, and you have already in this country and in the United States, people investigating alleged miscarriages of justice and doing it on their own. You have universities doing, have legal departments doing it. And that's been a big development, which has led to podcasts and, and serials in the United States. What What's different, I suppose, is the web sleuth. Um, I think it's interesting. There are obvious dangers if you have people researching crimes online if they get too close to it or if they get the wrong person. And I think that's one of the dangers of social media is that a rumor has gone twice around the world before truth has got his boots on. And I think that that would be the danger. If you look at some of the horrible trolling that's gone on of, say, the McCann 
family um, with people spreading rumors uh, and saying this is what's happened and that's what's happening without the proof. Um, I think that's the danger of Web Sleuth. But it, it, it's certainly a very strange story. It deals with a, a, one serial killer, two serial killers. We don't know because I've only seen the first two episodes. So I, I, if I go on further, I'll spoil it. But anyway, that it, it, the other thing that's interesting about it is it's about a serial killer. And we don't actually have that many in in Britain, I mean, we have a very high clear up rate. We have a very low murder rate in in this country, and I think that's one of the reasons there is such fascination with murder, either in crime fact or crime fiction, because it is it is so unusual. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at Bluenile dot com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to Bluenile dot com and use promo code Listen to get fifty dollars off your purchase of five hundred dollars or more. That's code Listen at Bluenile dot com for fifty dollars off. Bluenile dot com code Listen. But it's safe to say you, you've enjoyed the show so far. Yeah, I certainly have. Yes, I'm curious as, as to see what they come up with at the end. Uh, for more information on the killing season, you can visit crimeinvestigation.co.uk. But Duncan, when we talk about crimes, you've worked on so many high-profile crimes, but perhaps most recently, Hatton Garden. Yes, uh, uh, it was like a throwback. I mean, it, they, they're called the Diamond Tweezers and so on. I mean... I was curious about it when when it happened because all the theories were they must be Eastern European uh, or former special forces. It's so involved that it could be the Pink Panthers from Eastern Europe and so on. And then when they made the arrests uh, and they said that uh, three of the characters, I think, were in their 70s, I thought, I wonder if I know any of them. And I I did know um, Brian Reader, who's been who pleaded guilty. Um, and is currently in, in prison in, in Belmarsh. And I had known him before, and I, I liked him. I found him interesting. And so I found myself um, covering the, the case. And it was very much like an old-fashioned case. Nobody had been killed. Nobody had been threatened. There was no damage done. And therefore, the atmosphere in, in court, um, it was at Woolwich Crown Court, not the Old Bailey, was kind of like the old days because the there wasn't that level of of tension uh four of them had pleaded guilty anyway um and i i found it fascinating and and the the case has not yet um reached there is still a couple of appeals coming up and so on but i th- what was interesting was reading the social media responses to it whatever newspaper it was whether it was the guardian or the mail the 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 response was uh, makes you proud to be British or <laughs> good luck to them or or whatever. There was a feeling. Obviously, there were victims. There were people who had lost their savings or people who'd lost their jewels and things like that. But I think because nobody had been whacked and nobody had been shot and nobody had been kidnapped and held ransom while they did it, there was a feeling that um, this happened near the city. There's a lot of people in the city who help themselves to a lot of money without doing very much for it. So. There, there is that feeling 
post that kind of great boom of people paying themselves ri ridiculous bonuses and taking millions of pounds in salaries that, well, at least these guys went and got their own money rather than taking other people's with, you know, just by a, a, a move on a laptop. It's funny, I used to work opposite the pub in Islington where they apparently orchestrated oh, right. yes. everything. And, and yes. there's this real, you're right, this almost community spirit in terms yes. of, of portraying them, not as heroes, but as yes. kind of, you know, miscreants, you know, yes. kind of cheerful chappies who tried to take on the establishment. Yes. Um, is that something you've noticed in crime where people, it's almost like football in a way I find crime sometimes. People kind of pick a team and mm. they're very steadfast and they're very thorough in terms of if a court case is happening or if a famous crime's happening. Think back to the O.J. Simpson case. Everybody has an opinion, even yes. the general public, sometimes unfounded, but yes. sometimes based on, 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 on a lot of research. Do you find that that's quite an interesting thing to deal with as a reporter, having to deal with the thoughts of the general public as well? I think people have assumptions about whether or not somebody's guilty or should be punished severely if they are convicted uh, and whether or not they that particular person is is a kind of heroic figure or a horrible slag and, and should be punished. And and I would get that whenever you would write about a, a, a well-known criminal. Some people would say, you know, he's nothing but a common thief and, and so on. But what I found, you know, for instance, somebody like Bruce Reynolds, who organized the great train robber, they turn out to be very interesting uh, people. They've spent a lot of time in prison. They've done a lot of reading and they have quite a philosophical take on life. And um, they made that particular choice. He, in fact, wanted to be a journalist, uh, Bruce Reynolds, and got turned down by the Daily Mail, I think, back in, in whenever it would be the 50s. Um, and so you you learn. I mean, one of the lessons I learned from both from talking to, to criminals and to police officers and to lawyers and victims is never assume you whatever your assumption is about somebody, good guy, bad guy, whatever. Quite often your your assumption is wrong. And, and that was, I think, the biggest lesson I learned in, li in life from crime reporting is never assume. Many more lessons to be learned in the book, which is out all good bookstores online as well. But for you, what's next? What is next in the life of Duncan Campbell? Well, I would like to, I'd like to do, I'm working on, a, 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 I have done a, novel, a couple of novels, one called If It Bleeds, which is about, of course, a crime reporter. Um, and so I'm working on the second one with the same character, um, currently called Full English Breakfast, which is set in, uh, set in Spain. And that's um, what, what I, you know, I'm working on at the moment. But uh, I'm still involved in, in doing bits and pieces with, with this book, which I enjoy doing very much. Well, hopefully we'll get you back on when the novel's out. Oh, with a bit of luck, yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming today. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you very much to Duncan for coming into the Crime Investigation HQ and hopefully we'll have him on again very soon. If you like the podcast and you want to help us out, we are on Twitter at CI or Facebook CIUK. It'd be great to hear your correspondence as usual. Or if you're feeling very, very nice, a rating on iTunes five stars, please, would be marvellous and would be very much appreciated. For now, the Crime Investigation podcast is over. Until next time, stay curious. Imagine. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.